Welcome to this special edition of the podcast, What's the Score? Today's show is going to be a repeat, but with good reason. A friend of the program, a friend of mine, the world-renowned musician, pianist, that worked on over 2,000 scores, Mike Lang, passed away this August in 2022. It's a sad day for many people in the film music world, or just in the music world in general. I remember I reached out to him on Facebook. I found that he was on there in early 2021, and to my surprise, he responded to me. He agreed to come on my podcast, but finding a date to record took several months to work out, going back and forth. Once we found a date, Mike wanted to do a test of our recording to make sure that it worked okay in his house. He was the only guest that's ever asked to do a test run before we actually record the final product. That's how serious he was taking the program that we were about to do. The amount of work he put into preparing for the podcast was more than any other guest before or since. I was amazed at the amount of detail and the amount of work that he put into it. Now, as a result, we had to record our conversation and turn it into two parts. He had numerous stories and He loved to tell those stories and and talk about his love of the music. And I wasn't about to shut him down. I let him go. His stories about working with composers are fascinating. He also explains how he adapts to different films. And he also offers a lot of technical information about music that I have no idea what he was saying. But it was worth it. I loved hearing all the details he had to share. I'd like to think that this may be the most comprehensive interview he's ever done. The date of recording was May 8th, 2021. His selections of cues, I'm sure, will please all of you. Now, if you've heard the podcast before, which uh, became available in May of 2021, later that month, Perhaps this is an easy way for you to hear it again, because it's worth listening to a second time. And for those of you that are hearing it for the first time, there's much to enjoy in this episode as well. I'm honored to have known Mike, and I'm also honored to share this conversation with you. Mike Lang, rest in peace. Now, here's the program as it originally was recorded. This will be part one. Enjoy reminiscing with the great one, Mike Lang. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today.
Recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. He's a freelance jazz musician and studio artist who has worked with singers such as Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, Diane Krall, John Lennon, and Barbara Streisand, just to name a few. But he's with us today because of his connection to film music. He's worked on over 2,000 scores with such composers as John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Henry Mancini, Hans Zimmer, and John Barry. He's also a solo performer playing jazz piano. Trust me, I could go on forever, but uh, we have much to talk about, so I don't want to waste any more time on that. So I hope all of you, please join me in welcoming Mike Lang to the program. Hi, Mike. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm good, and I should let the audience know this has been months in the making. This man is is so busy. We've had we've had to juggle schedules for months, and so I'm just delighted to finally uh, have you on the program and appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, like I do with most of my guests, I always like to learn a little bit of background about them. Uh, I guess on a personal level. So I was kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, growing up, what it was like growing up, uh, family. Uh, yeah, just those kinds of things, your, your formative years, I guess, up until high school or college, something like that. Okay. Um, so I'm from the Los Angeles area. Um, uh, the first house uh, that I lived in was in Studio City. And wow. after uh, being in various places, I am ironically back in Studio City. <laughs> and, um, I was told by my parents that I requested piano lessons when I was about four and a half. Wow. Uh, I have concluded that was at least partly mythical because I can't imagine any four-year-old wanting lessons in anything, much less <laughs> piano. However, we had a, a beautiful upright piano. I don't know how many of your um, uh, fans out there are, you know, aficionados of pianos at all, but um, Steinway made upright pianos, you know, and huh. We had a Kanabi, which was very similar, and they were called Concert Grand Uprights because they were really massive pianos. And the thing that, in retrospect, was so uh, magical to me about the piano is that the whole harp of the piano, the strings, are right in front of you. So that sound is coming right at you as Mm -hmm. opposed to a grand piano when everything is, you know, in front of you and going upward. So, I mean, it was just so incredible to play the piano and hear the sound. And... um, so I started uh, playing piano, uh, having instruction with uh, my first teacher was a woman whose name was Gertrude Floyd, which sounds like what she was, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I could figure out how to communicate that. Um, she was probably in her mid-60s and um, uh, kind of a large woman with white hair, as you might imagine. So for me, that was like this older, overweight woman who was teaching me. Of course, now I'm older than she is, so there's <laughs> irony there. But the thing that was interesting about her, she was a very conventional piano teacher, Except, um, in addition to having me play written music, there's a famous teaching book called John Thompson. And the first, the first um, uh, tune that's in it is si- simply a solo piece for the right hand that's something like, excuse my singing voice. Yeah, that's right. But it's play, play, playing melody in, in, in essence. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. And then the left hand, was the second piece, so it's like a minor um, um, inversion. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you put the hands together. So that was normal little conventional stuff. But the other thing that emerged was that she one day showed up 
with a piece of sheet music of a popular song. And um, so that was my introduction to uh, popular music. And she didn't know how to write chord changers or anything like that in the conventional sense. But like for an F major seven, she would write the notes of the chord like F, A, C, E, which would be what the left hand would play. And she would encourage me <clears throat> to understand that I could play the melody and the left hand, but it, with a sense of um, looseness that it wasn't just looking at written notes and, 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 and reproducing them. So now all of a sudden it was opening up my internal ears and whatever creativity was around. And, uh, you know, eventually by the time I was nine, um, there was a piece I used to play. It was sort of my show off piece, I guess you'd call it. It was called Bumble Boogie. And what it was was an adaptation of The Flight of the Bumblebee, which was <coughs> a famous virtuoso piece. Yeah. And solo violinists would play it and pianists would play it. And it, I think it was from a Rimsky-Korsakov opera. And um, at any rate, it was, it was translated into this version where that melody that I just attempted to sing for you was played with a boogie-woogie bass. And uh, so boom, 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 and then that melody. And so it was really kind of flashy and cool. And I, I threw in some glissandos and then I started improvising on the boogie woogie pattern. And my parents would, you know, uh, ask me to demonstrate this to their friends. Now, you know? now how, how old were you when you decided to, I'll improvise a little bit here. We, well, it, you know, somewhere between four and a half and nine, it started what? to happen. You know? <laughs> But I mean, you know, improvise, you know, in a probably fairly modest sense. But but um, I do remember as time went on uh, and I started getting involved with repertoire and playing Beethoven and Mozart and stuff. The thing that I, in retrospect, came to understand was I was never really drawn to wanting to practice the piano eight hours a day and 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 play this stuff over and over and over again in hopes of being, you know, a, a pianist who would give recitals and play with orchestras. I was always interested in what the composers wrote for what the music was. And so the reason I became adept at sight reading music was because I love to play these pieces over and over again, not to work and perfect them, but to enjoy what the composers had done and to think about what it should sound like mm -hmm. from a creative point of view. And that always uh, seemed to be much more interesting to me than, you know, um, reproducing what's written on the page. And, yeah. and so we, can, we can touch upon this later, uh, but that when I started uh, deciding and, and understanding that I had a really wonderful opportunity to have a career as a recording pianist, it was never to be like a member of the orchestra to come in and play with an orchestra. I mean, it was lovely. I come in and play these beautiful written out piano solos with an 80 piece orchestra. I mean, it's a phenomenal experience, but I always was most interested in what could I bring to it beyond what was on the page, which okay. was sometimes okay. not very much. Yeah. So in speaking about loving to play classical music like Beethoven and Mozart over and over again and becoming a good sight reader, uh, maybe unintentionally at that point, but mm -hmm. it happened and was very important to me later. The thing that, that knocked me out was that uh, the music was so interesting to me, you know, uh, creatively, like how come he went there? Why did he do that? And so when I started doing studio work, as I started to reference, 
Um, for me, what was interesting was, well, this movie was in London in 1820. What does that mean? How, what is, how does that affect the character of the music? Oh, no, this movie's in 1967, and it's Selma, Alabama. Well, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? <laughs> and sometimes that would mean, you know, that I might do something beyond what was on the written page, depending on the context of the score and, and all of that, or not. Would but, this be something you would do on your own, or would the composer talk to you about that? Well, it would vary. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, one of the things, and again, I, I can deal with this later, but one of the things I learned when I, you know, when you first start off, you're like an eager beaver and you want to make sure it's perfect and you want to ask all these questions. And I remember when I did the very first television show I did with Lalo Schifrin, who was the first composer to hire me, uh, he, he uh, in his warm, lovely Argentinian accent, when it was over, he said, <laughs> Mike, he says, you play really good. You do a good job. But we are not creating masterpieces here. We have a budget. We have to move fast. You can't <laughs> ask so many questions. And <laughs> and what, where that ended up for me is that when I was sitting on sessions later, I, I would think of ways to not ask questions and solve problems. So that meant making decisions on my own and figuring out if the composer didn't like it, then let him tell me in that context. Don't okay. don't bug him. He's worried about if the director's going to accept his music or not. He's not worried about E flat and bar twenty seven. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, that's a that's a great segue. Huh? <laughs> that's a great segue to the, one of the first uh, cues that you chose that you would like to highlight. Okay. And and, and what Mike has done is uh, he's choose he's chosen uh, scores that he you know particularly likes and is proud of his performance in them. Uh, and believe me, there's going to be plenty of variety here of composers and styles, so I think you'll enjoy that. But, and the first one happens to be uh, with composer Lalo Schifrin. Uh, this is from uh, the film The Cincinnati Kid, and so I'm curious if you would uh, kind of tell us a little bit about that recording and what you remember about it. Well, that was probably the one where he gave me a little bit of a lecture. Or, or, no, you know what? It probably was not because um, – uh, when he gave me the original lecture, he said something like, you know, I can use you on TV stuff, but but you need to be more experienced before you can do a movie. And so this along came this movie, which was very early. I think the very first recordings I did were in 1965, and this movie was in 1965. And uh, I don't have a lot of memory about... Um, the score other than that it was jazzy and it had blues in it. And, um, and he wrote a wonderful song that now escapes me. That's in the movie. Um, and I'm embarrassed about that. It was a big, oh. big song for Lalo that, um, that Bill uh, Henderson originally recorded and then Ray Charles recorded it. And I think that's on the album. In fact, bear with me and I will. Is this the one called new Orleans per, uh, procession? Well, that's the track that we're going to listen to. Okay. Um, uh, uh, bear with me one second. I want to see if I can find this. Uh, okay. Uh, Mike is very precise, ladies and gentlemen, and he's put a lot of work into preparing for this. So he needs to be applauded for that. Believe me. Yeah, but you're not going to applaud for me. The fact that I can't find... Uh, the name of the song, but anyway, um, we could we can come back to that, or you know, 
but 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 I just discovered this in putting all of this stuff together for the show. Uh, I went and found the link to, to the thing, and I saw that I was credited for a piano solo. So this is called New Orleans Procession, and I went through it to see what it was, and it, it, it basically uh, sounds like there's something in the film where there's New Orleans procession music, which is kind of, you know, very uh, bluesy-oriented, right. that kind of thing. And in the middle of this thing, there's a piano solo. And, and it's about a minute long in the middle, and um, I listened to it, and I thought, God, this is really good. I wonder who played it. But I was kidding myself because I knew <laughs> how to play it. But it's sort of like hearing the way I sounded many, many years ago and loving the energy of it. And it's very gospel-y. And I didn't realize that uh, I actually played gospel music as well as I now, in retrospect, felt that I did on this track. I was huh. very, very pleased to hear this. I said, you know what? It would be hard pressed to play it any better than I did then. So well, uh, let's let's have a listen. Then this is a from the film Cincinnati Kid. It's a uh, uh, the the cue is called uh, New Orleans Procession, and it's written by Lalo Sheffrin and played on a piano solo by our guest Mike Lang. The next, um, the next cue you chose was from a favorite movie of mine. And by the way, I must tell you, when I looked through your your list of credits, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, there's so many movies and scores that I loved, and it was, it was, it was. I brought a smile to my face to see how many you had had performed on. And this is one of, one of the ones that I was smiling about. This is a, a from the film Big, written. Uh, the score is written by Howard Shore. Uh, yeah, I think you worked on uh, Goodbye and End Titles is what you wanted to talk about. Uh, I think. Well, but yes, that's correct. Out. Okay, uh, tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Okay, now I cannot remember if this this was certainly one of the first movies I did with Howard Shore, and what I would like to say about Howard Shore is he's unlike anybody else I've ever met in the most wonderful sense. He has this magical, he's one of these people who really is in tune with himself and he understands the way he sees things and the way he has preferences and things that work for him. And, um, it always informed what went on when we were doing stuff together, you know, cause, um, I would say, well, what about this? Oh no, 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 no. We can't do it that way. You know? And, and, and I didn't always understand it, but I certainly have understand understood the fact that he has a career that has its own profile. It's not like anybody else's and his way of being diverse is 
unlike anybody else's. He just, he listens to himself and he, he, and he knows what he's doing. So Big is this wonderful, wonderful film with Tom Hanks and the song Heart and Soul is a big part of the movie. And, 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 and it just playing that dot, dot, dances it on a big keyboard and all of this stuff. And so this is kind of what I understood and remembered to be the situation. At the last minute, um, they were originally waiting for an important song recording for the end title. Uh, at some point in movies, now this movie was 1988, so certainly before then, they started to realize it was really great to put a big, you know, pop song at the end of a movie would generate record sales, which would generate stuff for the movie. And yes, it would be a drag for the composer who couldn't reprise his beautiful film score. But that started to be the way of the world, you know. Mm. And so they were waiting. I think they were waiting. They told me a big, big record with Aretha Franklin and James Ingram, you know, so an R&B kind of big pop record and it fell through they didn't get the record so at the last oh. minute penny marshall was saying howard what can we do you know and so um penny marshall being the director yeah penny was the director right. and uh, and so howard came to me at some point and said we got to do something with this song and what do you think and um i can't remember if it was my idea or his idea that we could do it with a rhythm section and it would be really old-fashioned kind of you know rock and roll you know okay like the the pop record of that song and then and then i said or maybe it came after that conversation where then the piano could take it and just sort of go through um uh a kind of a journey playing it kind of in an old-fashioned stride style and speeding it up or whatever i said i don't know i said why don't you just uh, let me record something and we won't even talk about it we'll see what happens you know (laughs) So, uh, so here's the way I remember this. So, so I did it and, uh, this doesn't happen very often, but I felt like, uh, you know, God was shining on me or something that it was like, but much better than I thought it would be, you know, it was okay. (laughs) So, so I went in the booth, you know, waiting for everybody to tell me exactly what I thought, which was that it was great. And I go in the booth and Howard and Penny are in a heated discussion and I obviously understood that I shouldn't interrupt them with my impatient need to be told how great I was. <laughs> and, uh, and I started realizing they weren't even talking about what I had just played. And I thought, that's horrible. <laughs> I about what I just played. And finally, when that paused, I said, so, um, so how was it? And, and Penny Marshall turned to me and I'd never even met her. And she said, no good. Like that. No good. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if those were the words, but it was a complete. Yeah. In essence. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and not a very delicately expressed, you know, way of telling me. Huh. And I, and I just, and I probably should have just said, well, what would you like differently? And, that, but I think part of me told me that she might not know what she would like differently. Cause that happens a lot. So I just said, um, well, um, maybe, maybe it needs to be simpler. Cause what I had played was, you know, a lot of notes and stuff stuff i said you want me to try another version and then i was waiting for her to say forget about it or whatever else she would tell me she said yeah why don't you do another one so i went out and did another one uh which in my memory wasn't as good uh was a little more careful and not as zany and and and, uh and that was the end of that and then 
uh, I got two other um, calls to work on other versions of what they were going to do with the end title. At one point, they brought in Jimmy Haskell to arrange, which I guess was this song, and I wasn't available for the other two times they did. So I just thought, okay, that's going to be the end of it. Um, I uh, don't know what they'll end up with, but it's not going to be what I did. And then the movie came out, and I may have even talked to Howard at, at, at some point, and I was updated to the fact that the very first take that I did, that's what they went with in that <laughs> movie. And that, that's what you are going to be um, challenged to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great story. It's, it's, and I'm sure you're full of them, and I've certainly heard a lot of them. It, it, directors don't, well, most directors really don't understand music and the, or, or have an, I mean, they have an appreciation for it, but they really know a lot about it. Uh, and, and, and that must create a challenge for you guys sometimes to try to express to a director exactly why this works or why it doesn't work or something like that. And, uh, it's, it's a great example of a director's kind of not thinking they don't know what they want. And then eventually they kind of come to the conclusion, you know, they were right. We'll, we'll do the first one. Yeah, well, each scenario is different, but I think what you're saying is got so much merit to it. I mean, they speak in a different language. Music yeah. is at one level a very technical language, but I think when composers and directors have the best communication, it's when they both abandon the technical part of it and try and talk about it in reference to the film and what the film needs and what the characters are. And you know, when they talk on that level, then there's shared ground, you know, and there's, there's yeah. opportunities. Yeah. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is from the film Big. Uh, it's the, the cue is Goodbye and End Titles. It features our guest, Michael Lang on piano, and it's written by composer Howard Shore.
the next cue I uh, was delighted to see that you chose. Um, I, I just, I, I love the whole score, but in particular, the end titles is just a real favorite of mine. Uh, the film I'm talking about is Russia house and the uh, composer is Jerry Goldsmith. Um, gosh, I loved the score, but, but the end titles just, I, I almost still get goosebumps about it. It's just, and it goes on and on forever, which I think is part of your story behind it. Because, uh, I, I loved the, uh, I loved how it just kind of continued and there were different versions of the theme that kind of permeated throughout the entire, uh, entire piece. So tell us a little bit about, uh, the background on that particular cue or that, that recording session with Jerry on the uh, Russia house. So the Russia house with Jerry Goldsmith was a really unique, uh, uh, moment for me in my career and a unique moment for me with Jerry Goldsmith and Jerry Goldsmith. And I had a lot of unique moments because, um, he was one of these guys. If he liked you, he liked to mess with you. That was his <laughs> way of being affectionate. So he would always, there was always this little, uh, uh, acerbic kind of, attitude he would have with me sometimes. Um, but on so many occasions, he would tell me how special that I was to uh, put up with all this stuff. And, and <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it, it was a very personal relationship. We didn't spend a lot of time together apart from just going to, to work with him, but it was just, he always made me feel appreciated in a way that I, I will cherish forever. So he called me one day and he said, Mike, he said, I need you to come over to my house, my studio. I'm doing a demo for a movie and it's got some jazz stuff in it and I need you to help me get, get it done. And I had never done that for him. I'd never been to his studio to work with him. So, so I went over there and he said, um, he says, so uh, the director uh, wants a jazz thing as part of the score. And I've hired Branford Marsalis to play soprano saxophone and Branford, I was very much aware of, uh, and uh, he's a great musician. Oh yeah. We talked. We talked about other musicians in the rhythm section, and uh, well, actually, there was no drums to be. He just wanted to talk about bass players, and he ended up with John Patitucci, who was one of the best jazz bass players uh, of our time. So, uh, so anyway, he at the time he had me coming to his house. The idea was going to be that it would be soprano saxophone, and then he wanted to use like uh, a DX7, which is a synthesizer, Yamaha DX7 doing sort of that version of a Fender Rhodes electric piano, which was very different from the electric piano sound itself. It was its own character sound. And he wanted to have like a fretless electric bass. So he could, he didn't really have those sounds and he didn't really have the facility to play them the way a jazz musician would play them. So that's why I was there to create all of this. So it was a bit of a challenge because, you know, back in 1990, it wasn't like we had pristine samples that sounded exactly like instruments. So, um, so he talked to me about, um, the, well, there was one funny thing he said. So he says, you know, cause Jerry actually was the only composer that I can think of way back then that owned synthesizers and knew the synthesizers the way we as players knew them. So mm. when when you'd go to do a typical film with Jerry and he'd have two or three keyboard players, um, all of the electronic sounds, he had cartridges and way of giving us the sounds. So we didn't create the sounds. And for most films, we were sort of like synthesizer orchestrators or synth synthestrators, if you will. You <laughs> you go to a film and you'd look at, you know, bar one and it would say um, dark, ambient, uh, slowly moving uh 
you know, biting sound. And so we had to think of what that was musically and the timbre of it and come up with it. And then the composer would say, well, yeah, well, that's pretty close, but how about if you do this or do that? And you'd arrive at what it was going to be. So with Gary, it was none of that. You know, it was always there. But now he was asking me for these sounds and he kind of, he said sarcastically, he said, he says, so word has it around town that you have this really cool DX7 Fender Road sound, which, which was true, but not in some big way. It wasn't like everybody word, thought of me. Word around town. I love that. <laughs> that was his way. You know, I'm not sure I got the exact words, but that, that was the way he would speak to me about it. You know? And I said, well, Jerry, I don't have my sounds here. So if you have a DX7 library and you have a bunch of electronic piano sounds, I usually take two DX7s that are both monaural and I pan them 45 degrees, you know, left and right. And I use two sounds that sort of interact with each other. And I add reverb and chorusing depending on the situation. So anyway, he had all that, we got it together and I played him the sound and I said, how's this? And I thought, you know, we're in the ballpark. And he looked at me and he said, I hate you. <laughs> well, so, yeah, and this was way, even once when I was talking to his wife, Carol, she said, Jerry would never say that. And I said, Carol, he didn't mean it. He just, <laughs> it's, it's his sense of humor. I, I, I get it totally. I do. I get it. And, and she, she, Jerry, she said, Jerry never hated anything. I said, I know. Well, he didn't hate me. He was just messing with me because he didn't hate me. So, so, so anyway, when he said that, I, this is my typical kind of way of dealing with him. I said, well, that's okay. You can hate me, but how's the sound? <laughs> and he said, that's the reason I hate you. <laughs> okay. And I knew where he's going with this, but I just said, okay, so you hate me because you hate the sound. Is that it? No. He says, I hate you because I like the sound <laughs> and you like the sound and hate me because and he said, because I didn't create it. He said, Mike, I create all my own sounds, but you did this. <laughs> so I, I didn't let it go. I said, well, you know, Jerry, if you want screen credit for creating the sound, I'm happy to relinquish it, you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we got all of that done. And the reason I'm telling you part of this is because it translated into another aspect, which is so now we're at uh, Sony recording with Big Orchestra and the concept had changed. It was no longer the great Fender Road sound that he hated uh, or hated me for. And it was no longer the electric bass. And it was no, but it was a soprano sax. And let me tell you, of all the things I had to record during the demo, trying to make a believable soprano saxophone sound with the kind of technology that was available then, that was the hardest thing of all. I bet. Because, you know, synthetic saxophones were like, a joke. So, but what I did to make it sound expressive was I used the pitch bend wheel and the vibrato to add expression to the melody to take your ear away from the sound. So I tried to stylize the performance so that you didn't think about the sound and you thought about, oh, that's kind of cool the way that note banter, that, you know, whatever. So, so anyway, so we're on the session and now I'm playing piano and John Patitucci's playing upright bass. And, and Branford's playing soprano, and uh, and I was introduced to him, and he was the nicest guy in the world. We got to do a few things after that project, so I remained friends with him and really a big fan. And so so we record the main title that had this jazz theme in it, which you hear in the end credits. Uh -huh. And Jerry always kind of liked me to go into the booth when he was doing playbacks because he would like to sometimes ask me or 
whatever. He'd want to have me there just in case there was something he wanted to tell me. Yeah. So we're there and we're playing it. It sounds really good. And, and he and he calls me over. He says, Mike, I, come here. I said, yeah, Jerry, what is it? He said, you know, um, I don't like the way Branford's playing the melody. And, and I'm thinking about it. And it sounded great to me. It sounded very straightforward and beautiful, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, well, what don't you like about it? And he said, well, you did all this kind of cool stuff on the synthesizer, and he's not doing anything like that. It's too straight. And and I said, well, just he's probably so uh, thrilled to be here playing for you, and he's probably thinking he's playing a melody on a, on a film that he's not supposed to fool around with it. Just ask him to loosen it up or do whatever. He, he'll do anything you want, I'm sure, and he can do it. And he looks at me, he says, you tell him. <laughs> and, I, and, and I said... Jerry, I said, I just met him. I can't tell him. And Jerry says, I just met him too. I said, yes, Jerry, but there's a difference. You engaged him. He's working for you and it's your music and it's inappropriate for me to tell him anything. And Jerry didn't say anything. And so we walk out of the booth into the, the recording room and we were in front of the whole orchestra and Jerry put his arm around me, which made me a little concerned about what's this about. <laughs> While he has his arm around me, he yells across the orchestra to Branford, who was set up in the back near where the piano was, says, hey, Branford, Mike has something to tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I mean, I just oh, that's the whole idea is to laugh because I mean, <laughs> When you think about what is it that was really memorable about playing in the studios, this is the stuff that makes it all worthwhile. This is the <laughs> humanity of it. You know, during the period when there was so much recording going in in L.A., for decades, I would go from one job to another, you know, four days on a movie, then television recording, three three hours, four-hour sessions, and then recording with art, artists of every different kind of music, you know, art, yeah. artists, pop artists, jazz artists, you know, playing classical music in a film, playing on electric keyboards, playing on acoustic keyboards. But the thing that made it so wonderful were moments like this, you know? So I'm so happy that, uh, that in, in my little, uh, um, how can I put it? Microscopic biographic moment with you that, you know, we <laughs> have moments that kind of define the thing that made it really special to have a life like this. So that's what well, I wanted to say. And, uh, and the, the, the cue is just, it's magical folks. It truly is. I mean, I, I want to just go on about the cue because there's something very important to say about it, which okay. When we got to the uh, this end title, this is where the most full-blown jazz example of playing with improvisation took place. Mm. And it felt, it's just the trio at some point. It's just Branford, myself, and John playing. And we're playing this thing that has uh, repeats around it, and they were going to do a fade ending. And it felt so good. We just kept playing. I think it was my fault for kept pushing the comping and keeping it going. And we probably played an additional two or three minutes, you know. Mm, I can I can sense that, yep. And I, I, I will never forget when it was over, Sandy DeCressa, the contractor, she came out of the booth and came all the way across the room, as long as I've known her and as many wonderful, uh, you know, films we've done together and she was such a supporter of mine she came over and just said that she went to me to tell me how special it was you know and that it just had that effect on everybody in the booth and wow. the director liked the music so much if any of you get a chance to see the film after these remarks he reprised the video 
of the film just to let the music play. You'll see wow. the credits are going on. It goes back. I think they're at an airport or there's a plane or something. I can't <laughs> And so that was a, something that never happened before or after that in my life. The ultimate compliment, I'm sure. I mean, it's... Yeah. Well, it wasn't just me. It was Branford and John and the chemistry. And, wow. and his theme is just gorgeous. It is, it is. Let, 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 let's let our audience kind of experience it for themselves. This is a... This is the end titles from the film called uh, Russia House. Uh, it's uh, written by Jerry Goldsmith. It features Branford Marcellus on the saxophone, but it also features our guest, Mike Lang. Sit back, relax, and enjoy.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. You, you've uh, you've worked on a ver- on, on such a wide variety of films with different genres, different composers and have different styles. It's amazing. And now we come to uh, one of the most popular composers of all time uh, that you've worked with numerous times. Uh, but the cue that you've chosen is from the film called Hook. And this the composer we're talking about is uh, John Williams. Tell us a little bit about the working on that project and what went uh, went on between uh, getting that project done. Okay. Um, just, to, just to make a note, um, the, the, the things I've selected are things where I had something unusual to do as opposed to conventional things that I've done. Uh, okay. John Williams, the thing that I, I feel so wonderful about is how, um, how he carefully introduced me to the opportunity of recording with him. The first time I worked with him, I it was either on Towering Inferno or I think it was a Poseidon Adventure. And he wow. hired me by myself to come in and record a two-minute version of Auld Lang Syne for solo piano, which was just background music, source music. Huh. So I think he just wanted to see if I could actually do anything or not. <laughs> I mean, he knew me a little bit before that, but, but not – in a professional way. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and as far as playing, uh, on more conventional scores, doing something, one of the ones I'm most proud of is, uh, close encounters of the third time, because there was a lot of piano writing in that. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So I just wanted to mention that those things are out. There are other things out there, but, uh, regarding hook, um, the main thing that I did that was interesting, uh, creatively for me was that he, had a cue that they had already made a temp score 
for Steven Spielberg, and they had used Dave Grusin's recording of Mountain Dance, which was a very famous record that Dave made. It's uh, hmm. in his sort of uh, fusion-y jazz style, if you will, for lack of now, just just to let uh, some of our listeners may, may not be aware, the, the the temp score is when the the film is roughly put together, and, and just kind of explain what a temp score is. Uh, they put in temporary music. That's temp. And it's to give an idea of what kind of music will eventually be there. And when those things started to happen, uh, they proved to be sometimes not a positive uh, thing for the composer because what would happen is the director or the film editor would put in the music and it was just human nature that they get used to what was there because they keep working with the film with that music. And so very often composers would be kind of... um, pushed into trying to do stuff that was like that instead of just doing what would be the thing they would normally creatively decide to do. Mm. So uh, in a situation like this, I mean, I, I have no idea exactly anything specific other than that John called me um, to ask me for some input about how to record this uh, based on the fact that it was this tune and that he was going to write something that was going to feel like that. And because uh, Dave Grusin's Mountain Dance is very much a vehicle for the players, you know, it's it's really a jazz record. So it's very important who's playing and how they're playing to yeah. to make it come off. It's not just people coming in and reading, you know, a piece of music. So uh, my reaction was when we were con- conversing about it, I said, well, um, I would say just off the top of my head, if, if, if Dave recorded that tune in L.A. and the players were the kind of studio guys that are still here to get those players. Uh, and if not exactly those players, players who work with Dave and do this music all the time. And John liked that. And he said, well, who, who do you think? And so I said, well, here are the players that I know that work with Dave all the time that are in L.A. I'd said I would call Lee Rittenauer to play guitar. I would pl- call Abraham Laboriel to play electric bass and call Har- Harvey Mason to play drums. And then we uh, and we ended up uh, he ended up calling those people and getting them. And there was a second guitar I guess on it. And Mitch Holder, who had also done a lot of work with Dave played. And I think Paulino da Costa played uh, percussion. I don't remember per- exactly, but that was, that was the group. And so um, we, uh, we, we recorded the, uh, that. I think we were at Fox uh, I'm guessing. I'm not entirely sure there. Uh, and um and it was a beautiful thing. And John really nailed it. I must say he, 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 he was kind of out of his normal box, but there, there's nothing. I, I don't, I don't think there's nothing that I don't think there is anything that if you ask John to do something that was like something else and he did his homework that he wouldn't give you something really worth it, even yeah. his own spin on it, which this has, it definitely doesn't sound exactly like Dave Grusin, but he got the essence of what made that music important to be the choice that was in the temp track. You know? now, now, now I'm curious. I'm, I'm going to interrupt for a moment. I, I, this is something I'm curious about. Generally you guys sight read and just play the music. You're, you're, you're not even connected to the film. You're, it's being shown behind your back while the conductor is looking at the screen. I, I, I think that's how it works. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious to you, before it premieres formally, do you guys ever get a chance to, 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 to see the film and see, Oh wow. Now I understand why we played this or why we played it the way we did. I mean, does that make sense what I'm asking? 
To some extent, uh, the, the, the answer to the first part of that question is, yeah, occasionally we'll get invited to a screening. You know, um, uh, it hasn't happened much recently that I can recall, but, but yeah. uh, not that that means anything. But, but yeah. I have been invited to screenings where I worked on a score. Sometimes it's, it's not specific to, you know, they just invite everybody and the orchestra is included, you know. Uh, yeah. Or sometimes maybe they just want to make sure a lot of people show up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For the screening, so the screening looks good. Uh, but I would say, for me anyway, I don't usually, um, I don't interact with things intellectually that often unless something doesn't work. So I, when people ask me what it was like to, to see something I worked on or something like that, I, I, um, I tell people I'm a consumer when I'm watching a film or listening to a piece of music. You know, I just I go along for the ride. And I just want to be transported wherever the film or music is going to take me. And the only time mm-hmm. I get intellectually involved is when I'm listening to something or watching something. And all of a sudden I'm not comfortable or something's going on. That's not working for me. You know, like you watch a film and for an hour it's amazing. And then all of a sudden you're getting bored and you wonder why. And then you start thinking about it. And then you think, okay, uh, the plot, kind of got uh, paralyzed and nothing happened for the last 20 minutes. (laughs) The acting seemed to lose it or, you know, then you can start thinking about why. And um, so generally when I'm watching a film, I I, I just take it in. I mean, if it's something that I played on and it's noticeably something that I did, I guess I'd be more conscious of it. Yeah. Well, let's let's go ahead and have a listen to this. This is uh, from the movie Hook. Uh, the, uh, The cue is called Banning Back Home. And it does feature our guest, Mike Lang, on piano. And it's written by the maestro, John Williams.
I, I can't, as my listeners will know, I cannot have an episode without mentioning my favorite composer and that being John Barry. Um, there's a cue you chose uh, from a film called Indecent Proposal. And I've got to tell you about this from my perspective. I, that's a hard film for me to watch. It just really gets me in my gut about what these people, these characters are going through in, you know, primarily uh, uh, Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson. I mean, I, it just, it just, it, it tugs at my heart. It's amazing how powerful that movie is and, and the music that went with it. So anyway, having said that, um, I'm curious if you would uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, your experience of working with John and, and on this particular film. Yeah, I would love to do that. Uh, John Barry, um, not uh, unlike uh, Jerry Goldsmith for me, was a very special personal relationship. Uh, somehow there was a connection. Um, uh, and I think part of that with John was um, there were a number of pictures that he did um, in the 80s and 90s where there was an opportunity for the piano to go beyond the written page. And I can't remember exactly where that took place. I know Body Heat was a good example of that. Oh, yeah. And um, so he would let me know whether it was one of those or not. You know, there would be a conversation about it. You know, uh, he might just say, hey, Mike, you can kind of, you know, enjoy this or whatever he would say, you know. And um, so I really love this movie and I love the kind of there was something exotic about the what's the word I want to say? I guess something sexy about the the, the, the music, the, the, yeah, but it was yeah. dark. It was dark. It was complicated, yes. you know, and it had these twists and turns. So, um, so the, the, um, the piece we're going to hear, it's called instrumental suite. So it's assembled from the film. And I picked a sample, uh, for, for, for you all to hear where I, you can actually hear. And I think actually sense the fact that I'm taking the written material and, 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 and embroidering it adding there's commentary there's improvised stuff going on it's not mm -hmm. all out jazz solo it's not like that it's somewhere in the cracks you know it's the melody but it's but it's me uh and so and, and, and that's what and that's what fascinates me again i'm not a musician not even remotely i can't read music i don't know anything about music i just know what i like and what i don't and it just fascinates me that that you're able to, 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 to take something that is written and I guess instantaneously in your mind say, well, okay, here's what's written, but here's what I'm going to play that really complements that. And, and is that basically the way it happens? It's just instantaneous. It's, it's natural. It's organic. Yes. And no, the part, <laughs> the part is yes, is yes. It's organic and instantaneous. It, uh, the no part is it for me, somebody else might have a different answer, is it's not intellectual. I mean, it can be. But again, my intellect interacts when something's not working. Uh, when I sit down and play the piano, I mean, this is just an aside, but and it, I, my life has been self-discovery over and over again. I keep learning and I'm still learning about things that I didn't know two weeks ago. But one thing that I learned at one point um, being so involved in playing jazz, which is very much about improvisation, is there are times when it's just absolutely effortless and it's happening. And for me, what that is, is it's coming from somewhere else and I'm just a vessel. I don't know where it's coming from. 
it's you know it's like it, it could be mystical it could be mm. whatever you, it could be religious if you want it could be anything i do know this i do know that when it's happening i hear it i'm able to play it and the may, the reason i'm really able to play it is because i don't interact with it wow it's flowing through me and every time i think i'm a little better than what i'm hearing or that i can interact and raise the level i ended up i end up destroying it <laughs> it goes away, you know, and it's yeah. now I, it's like I was in the clouds and now I'm on the ground and, and yes, I'm doing something with my brain, but also, yes, there's no magic left. But so, what I'm hearing from you is that, that is that John Barry actually, I guess, trusted you to say, look, you know, make this better, improvise a little bit. And I, and I trust you to make it better. Is, would that be a safe assumption? Yeah, I don't know if those words would actually ever come that way. I mean, I think what happens is uh, he would, you know, either let me or I would just assume that it was okay to do. Again, um, it goes back to what I said earlier in the interview about trying to save composers time, which is money. I I remember once, this is just an aside on another movie, but I was doing a movie and it was one of the earlier movies I did with Jerry Goldsmith. It was called Mr. Baseball. And, and I remember that I was kind of astonished to see Jeff Picaro, who is one of the greatest drummers in history, who played with the rock and roll band Toto and was an amazing recording drummer. Uh, and he was known for playing rock and roll and R&B and all that stuff. And he was a very pure choice to have in a Jerry Goldsmith orchestra doing that. But Jerry wanted the rhythm section to have that real contemporary feeling, authentic. And the piano part had this stuff that was in the lower register that was just sort of uh, animated and anonymous, but it was all written out. And and here I am on a, I have to say it, on a quote unquote Jerry Goldsmith recording session. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder how it would be if I don't play what's written and I just play something that really bonds with what the drums are doing. Because the drums were, for me, the most magical part of what was coming out of the room. And so I'm watching Jerry like a hawk. So that's intellectual engagement, making sure. <laughs> and uh, and I start playing this stuff, and he immediately looked over, and he's looking at me, and his his eyebrows are furrowing a little bit, and he's thinking about it because he wasn't used to anybody doing that, I don't think. And he started to smile, and he and he was beaming, and it was like a word didn't have to be said, you know. Yeah. And wow. Wow. So, so you learn to kind of if you're. If you're looking for those moments where you can have more fun and be more involved personally. So I think on this, the, this thing, it, the, the other part of the answer is, you know, if I'm playing something that's not exactly right, then the composer can say, you know, I lo- <laughs> whenever they say, I love what you're doing, but. But. <laughs> yes. You're going to get some fine tuning. So, so John Mary could say, you know, I love what you're doing, but just a little less. Or I love what you're doing. Yeah. Could, could you do a little more? Or can you make it a little more, you know, it's too orange. Can you make it more purple? Which they wouldn't say that, but, but it it could be some more abstract idea of direction. Um, So, so as long as you have to have the belief in yourself that what you're doing is honestly motivated and that it is theoretically uh, a good thing to try you know, because it only tends to, it only takes 20 seconds for composers to say, no, go back to what I wrote. Yeah. It's, yeah. Fun. it's not, you know, it's, it's not time wasting. It's efficient. That's all. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, the cue we're going to play is, is, as uh, Mike had mentioned is an instrumental suite. 
from the original release of the uh, soundtrack of Indecent Proposal, which had a lot of songs and then it had like a 20-minute instrumental suite, there has since been, if anybody is interested, been a release of, of just the movie score that John Barry had, uh, uh, had written and recorded without all the songs and those sorts of things. But what we're going to do is play a section of the instrumental suite from the original uh, release of the score. Uh, this is, again, from the film Indecent Proposal. It's a section of the instrumental suite uh, featuring our guest, Mike Lang, and it's written by John Barry. Again, our focus is on film scores, but it is absolutely 
mind-boggling all the different other artists and recordings that you've done. One of the recordings that I wanted to, to talk about and and feature has to do with a uh, an album that you made on your own or a CD that you made on your own. Uh, kind of, I guess, is a love story to uh, Henry Mancini. Uh, the the uh, the CD I believe is called uh, "The Days of Wine and Roses." Uh, talk to me a little bit about that because we're going to play a couple of cues from that particular uh, CD, which are, if I understand correctly, kind of your interpretations, your arrangements of some of Mancini's uh, themes with a kind of a jazz uh, flavor to it. Um, The way this album came to be was through Bob Townsend, Robert Townsend, who is one of the most contributed uh, recording producers of film music ever. Indeed. There, there's nobody who, who has done what he's done. And the, th- the thing that's, to me, so special about him is that he, had, uh, when he, all the years he was at Berez Saraband, he had two missions as far as I saw it. One was to, to find, you know, um, suitable material to make recordings of, of contemporary films. And a lot of that had to do with generating income. So, you know, if a picture was popular, there was a marketplace, you clearly want to have that represented, you know. But he always because he has such amazing good music instinct and taste, he would always, you know, try and veer toward the things that were really wonderful from a music point of view as well. Yeah. You know, because you can have a film that is amazingly successful and the success is never dependent really on the music score. So you might have a, a, you know, a score that might not be particularly that interesting or that special from a music point of view, but what generates the soundtrack album sales is usually the overall um, uh, imprint of the film, you know. That- yeah, although yet I, I bet you would agree that there are sometimes scores that elevate a film <laughs> better than it than it should have been elevated. If you know what I mean, I mean it's a, there are film scores that have actually improved the performance of a of a, of a film. You know yeah, what I'm saying? And, and also can improve. I mean, you look at Saturday Night Fever without the BG songs. What would that have been? You know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It happens, and sometimes unexpectedly. Um, but uh, so anyway, getting back to Days of Wine and Roses, um, I can't remember how this got generated, but um, Bob t- talked to me or we talked collaboratively about doing um, doing me as a recording artist. And he was indicate uh, he wanted to do uh, a, an album of Henry Mancini's songs. And and the idea was that we were going to do just song material. And um, and then we would come back some some time to do a second album, which uh, never happened, unfortunately, uh, and just do things based on instrumental music of, of, of Hanks. And I do remember that when we picked all of the material for the album, there was this one uh, tune. I don't have it in front of me, um, which was um, it's from a Tennessee Williams movie. Do, do you have that in front of you? Uh, let's see what that oh, is. That Tom's the last Menagerie, or I think it was called Tom's Theme. It was a piano solo. Yeah, Tom's Theme from the Glass Menagerie. Yes. Okay, that I don't know if that's one of the ones you're going to play, but but yeah, but I is. insisted. Oh, good. I insisted on making an exception and doing that, and we can talk about that at the appropriate time about why I wanted to do it. But uh, so um, so the idea was to do half of the album with a, with a trio and half as piano solos. And as it worked out in the production of the album, we ended up using two different groups of trios. 
uh, we worked uh, the first session I did. I did it really in an odd way, and I, I don't know if I would ever do this again, but I recorded three hours of trio music with Chuck DeMonaco and Harvey Mason. And then after three hours of recording, I did three hours of piano solo recording, which was kind of nuts, but that's wow. what I did. And then I came back and I wanted a different kind of trio sound. So I got um, Dave Carpenter and Joel Taylor. And that, it was a more muscular, more, um, uh, how can I put it? Um, more animated kind of thing, more forceful kind of thing. And huh. so I did three hours with them and then I did three more hours of, of, of piano solo recording. And then we mixed it and got it all configured. And um, the thing about the arrangements was that I was originally not really thinking about doing arrangements. So I, I just wanted to have the chord changes of the song and just interact the, the way many jazz records are made, you, you know, where you go in with a band and the band just f figures it out at the moment. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to my wife, Karen, about it because uh, she said, what are you going to do for this? And I said, uh, I'm not going to, I'm going to write just, you know, my chords kind of, and then go in and do it. She said, why not actually write real arrangements? And I said, well, I don't, that's hard work. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you should think about it. And I thought about it and I actually did write very specific. When I say specific, I'm talking about the way the harmonies worked and all of that. It wasn't like a lot of compositional counterpoint or anything like that. It was still trio stuff to go in and play, but everything that was the attitude of the music and the way the harmonies that I used uh, kind of put a spin on the music. I felt like my goal was to, to do everything I could to be true to the music but to show my spiritual filter, if yeah. it makes any sense. I'm making this up as I go along, like everything I do. And uh, <laughs> so if I'm a little in inarticulate, I'm sorry. But but I, I will say that after six months had gone by and I finally could listen to the album and not hate it, I realized it came out okay. It takes me. <laughs> It, it, and, and is it available? Uh, is it still available, like on on an Amazon or someplace else? I know that it is available. I think on Apple Music or well, there is is one place that it's available. Let me see if I have a note of where. Well, um, then, then, that's all right. I mean, but but again, it's called the uh, the Days of Wine and Roses. Actually, it's Days of Wine and Roses. Right, the classic music of Henry Mancini, and it features. Uh, the the uh, arrangements of Mike Lang. So what we're going to do is we're going to play two different cues uh, or two different tracks from this uh, particular album to give you a feel for it as the Mike's interpretation of some of Henry Mancini's uh, themes. The first one will be Tom's theme from The Glass Menagerie. Uh, and the second one will be the theme from the film Charade. And both of these are kind of jazz arrangements and uh, interpretations by our guest, Mike Lang. Sit back, relax and enjoy.
So, Mike, as we, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, we've got so much still more to talk about. Uh, this is going to be kind of the, the wrap up of, of part one of our episodes, uh, with you. And again, I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm kind of curious. We should let our, uh, listeners know where can they find out more about you and what you're doing currently or what you've done in the past and things of that nature. Do you have any kind of social media contacts that you want to share? I have to uh, confess that this has not been the best part of what I should be doing. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a website. Um, shame, shame, shame. I know. I, and, <laughs> and, um, my Facebook page is useless because I've already reached 5,000 whatever friends. And, uh, I do post a lot of stuff, not much about me. Uh, mostly I use it as a place to post things that I like that are very unusual yeah, and, and, and diverse and, uh, shows my kind of crazy, uh, attraction to things that you wouldn't expect one person to like all of these different things. So, well, if, if, if anybody, you know, if anybody has a question about Mike or those sorts of things, please direct them to me. You know, what's the score has its own Facebook page and I'm, I'm happy to, to help you out with that, to try to be a, a, a conduit between Mike and you. And if there's a question you have or uh, a product you'd like to get, we're going to be talking more about some of Mike's work uh, going forward in, in part two. Uh, and again, I want to encourage you, if you can look on Amazon or on Apple iTunes for this Days of Ryan and, and Roses that uh, Mike put together, I've listened to it and I highly encourage you to if you're even remotely a fan of Henry Mancini or of jazz music, you're going to love this. Let so me just please, please check it out. Yeah, let me just add that on YouTube, at least currently, you can find these things and they're downloadable and it's it's not true. They're not being sold, but there may That's be some place where it's being sold. I uh, there's no major royalty scream coming to me, so don't worry about it. Uh, as far as that, <laughs> uh, and I was trying to make you a buck. I'm sorry, Mike. I started trying. <laughs> I mean, you can send contributions to uh, Frank on my behalf. I'm sure. <laughs> But by the way, the thing I do want to say is apropos of what, what, what Frank just said, I'm happy to respond to any of you uh, through, through his website, which I'll learn how to be a part of, and answer questions. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I am, I am really um, sorry I don't have more of the conventional kind of promotional stuff that people who are adult have. That's right. It, it, believe me, you're going to find out how beloved you are as, uh, as time goes along. It's uh, a lot of people excited about you being on the program. Let me also remind uh, everybody that uh, uh, the, the uh, people that are participating on our uh, program through Patreon and our patrons of the program, you'll be receiving a bonus. We're going to have a couple of different bonus episodes with Mike talking about some uh, some uh, issues or, or some stories that are outside of what we're going to talk about today. So stay tuned for that if you're a patron. And if you're not a patron, become one because you're going to hear some behind-the-scenes stuff you won't hear anywhere else. Uh, all right. So this is going to conclude a, a part one of the uh, of our conversation with Mike. Uh, believe me, there's more interesting stuff to come. So stay tuned for part two when we uh, release that here relatively soon. And uh, again, our thanks to Mike Lang for joining us and, and putting all the effort towards this. And I guess there's only thing, uh, only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.